0: Well, last week I told you we were going to take two weeks to dig into two of the most glorious, big God chapters you can find in all the Bible. And so last week we looked at Psalm 46, and today we're going to dig into Isaiah chapter 40. But I'm going to do something different. Before we even read it, I want to give you some background. I think we could get more out of God's Word if we knew what was going on when this was said. So I want to give you some background of what was going on leading up to Isaiah chapter 40. In fact, to really appreciate Isaiah chapter 40, you got to go back and read the first 39 chapters. So I want you to turn to chapter one. No, not really, but it would help. But let me go ahead and summarize the first 39 chapters for you. Judgment. Judgment is 39 chapters of judgment until suddenly chapter 40, there is this incredible Chapter of hope. And it is so startling and sudden that some scholars are even perplexed by it. You see, leading up to chapter 40, there's been a string of horrible kings ruling in Israel. King Ahaz was so wicked that he even began sacrificing children in the fire. Just like the nations around them who worshipped Moloch. And instead of following God's word... He tried to reshape the faith of God's people to make it fit more with cultural trends of the day. And what was trending in that day that was the greatest influence was Assyria. And so he actually took a trip to Assyria to check out the cities and to look at the worship of Assyria and the ways of Assyria. Now, this is the king of Israel, mind you. And while he was there, he was so taken by their ways and their worship that he took measurements of one of their pagan altars, wrote it all down to take it back to Jerusalem and have an exact replica of it made to put it in the temple in Jerusalem. Yikes. This went on for 16 years until finally in 2 Kings 16.2, it says he died. And then it summarizes his life this way. He did not do... He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That was the summary of his rule and reign. So you can imagine, 16 years under this kind of wickedness, the people of God must have been praying hard for a godly leader next. Give us a godly leader. And God did. Gave him Hezekiah. One of the, go from one of the worst to one of the best. Because in 2 Kings eighteen five, it says of Hezekiah, there was no one like him. Of all the kings of Judah, either before him... after him. Finally, godly leadership in the nation. But as you follow the story, you'll see that even the best leaders are faced with some of the toughest problems. And that's important for us to keep in mind today. Yes, pray for God to raise up godly leaders in the nation, in the church, at your business. But it's a huge mistake to ever think. If we could just Get the right leaders in place. Everything about our future will be secure and the conditions of our land will improve. That's not what you see with the nation of Israel. And it's what we need to keep in mind today. Even the best leaders cannot control the future because they do not hold the future. In their hands. The best leaders can only respond to circumstances as they arise because the future is controlled and shaped by the hand of our sovereign God. So, as soon as good King Hezekiah got into office, he faced three great problems that are described in the chapters leading up to the one we're going to read in Isaiah 40. Number one, he faced an overwhelming enemy to the north, the nation of Assyria. That was the superpower of the day that was growing and growing and growing until one of the most aggressive leaders they ever had came into office about the same time as Hezekiah. His name was Sennacherib. And under the reign of Sennacherib in Assyria, he invaded, wiped out, and scattered the northern part of Israel. And that meant now that this wicked superpower of Assyria was knocking right on the door. Right on the door of this little state of two tribes that are left called Judah huddled around Jerusalem. Secondly, King Hezekiah himself, as soon as he got into office, became deathly ill. Not just sick deathly ill. In fact, the word of the Lord came to him and said, this will be your death. You will not recover from this sickness. You're gonna die. And Hezekiah cried out to the Lord in prayer and begged God for more life, humbled himself and God granted it and said, I'm gonna give you 15 more years of life. But there was a third problem. The king of Babylon who at that time was not a very significant nation at all, heard about Hezekiah's sickness and sent messengers with letters and a gift. And good King Hezekiah, good leaders are never perfect leaders, did something really dumb. He showed the messengers all the treasures of Jerusalem and his own palace. In fact, God's word says there was nothing. Isaiah said, what have you shown them? He said, everything. I showed them Everything. And Isaiah prophesied to King Hezekiah and said, you have made a desperate mistake. This nation that you think is your friend, Babylon, is actually the one who's going to plunder you. And carry everything you have away to Babylon, including some of your very own descendants. Your descendants, King Hezekiah. In other words, the prophet Isaiah tells King Hezekiah, you've been so worried about the nation to the north. Quite frankly, God is going to bring Assyria to an end. And it's actually going to be in the very near future, this nation of Babylon that is going to plunder you and destroy you and bring an end to Jerusalem and do it in such a way that it's going to impact your descendants for generations to come. Now, I want you to imagine... Hearing that message, hearing all of that for the first time, just let it sink in. Imagine hearing that the future for the next 50 to 100 years for your grandchildren will not be one of freedom, but oppression. And imagine that this message that's being brought to you of bad news is the word of the Lord and not just some guesswork or speculation by somebody. And imagine Hearing that your future is not going to be one of prosperity, but abject poverty that will impact your children and grandchildren for generations to come. And within three generations, it happened just as Isaiah prophesied to King Hezekiah. In 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon... Marched on Jerusalem, reduced the city to a heap of rubble and deported most of the able people away, leaving the rest to a scavenger life. With a city with no walls. So this great chapter of the Bible, Isaiah 40, that so many of us know and love so well. This chapter, I think some of its verses would rank over there with John 316. These are the places that we know. Sometimes what we don't know is the context of what was going on when it was spoken. This great chapter of hope in Isaiah 40 was written to a group of people who had just received some of the most devastating news you could have received regarding their future. Not being what you would hope for. Not being what you would want for your children or grandchildren. Not being what you would want for yourself. You wouldn't choose it. Isn't that so often how it happens to us in this life? Your future can change dramatically. Your future can change dramatically with one piece of devastating news that you did not see coming. And you have no power to change. Maybe that's where you are today. Something has happened in your life that changes the direction of your future. It changes what you were thinking and hoping for and planning on. You were running down one track, a certain track, thinking this is what it's going to look like, this is what life's going to be like, and you're actually anticipating and excited about so much of it. But something has happened that knocked you off that track so that everything you were hoping in And looking forward to. And making plans for. Has been derailed. And in a way that you cannot fix. What do you do when something happens in your life. That has no fix. And changes. Your future. For the next 10, 20, maybe even 30 years. That's what's going on when God spoke Isaiah chapter 40. And so I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the prophet Isaiah. Put yourself in the shoes of prophet Isaiah when God says to him, I want you to go and comfort these my people. Go comfort them. People in circumstances like this who have just heard devastating news like this That the future is not going to be what you would have hoped for or expected at all or chosen or wanted. But go comfort them. Can you imagine an assignment like that? After 39 chapters of judgment filled with gloom and doom. And now this most recent message at the end of chapter 39. That the future is actually about to get worse. God says go comfort my people. I'm sure Isaiah was thinking, God, in light of everything you've just had me tell them. What could I possibly say now that would bring any comfort to these people? What would you say? What do you say when there is no fix and someone is living under a burden that God Has allowed them to bear. And they may need to bear it. For years. And there's no immediate hope. Of it changing. Isaiah chapter 40. Tells you. What to say. Isaiah chapter 40 gives us. The answer. You tell them. That a loving God. Is absolutely sovereign. And in control of all things. Including whatever it is that's impacting your life right now. So that whatever is going on in our world on a national level or in your personal life. A loving God controls it all for his glory and our good. Now, turn with me to Isaiah 40. And I want to invite you to stand as I read Isaiah chapter 40. The word of the Lord. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. Because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God stands. Say it forever. O oh, Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O oh, Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? Who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop. In a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the balance. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beast sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they're counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds a graven image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and all its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless Scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To him, whom then will you liken me or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One, lift up your eyes on high and see Who has created all these things? Who brings out their hosts by number? He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob? And why do you speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. There's no searching of his understanding. He gives power to who? The weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Oh, what does God say? What would God say? To people who've been shattered by national or personal circumstances. Well, we could dig into this chapter for weeks. But today I'm just gonna highlight two of the most important things you've got to get a hold of from this chapter. If you're gonna live in adverse circumstances with something that there's no fix for and you didn't see it coming, there's no way you can change it, how do you persevere? How do you respond? How do you not crumble? Two things I want to highlight. Here's the first. Number one, you must, you must know who God is in the midst of your shattering circumstances and darkness. Four times in this chapter, he uses the word behold. Look at it at the end of verse 9. Behold your God. Look at verse 10. He uses it twice there. Behold, the Lord God shall come and behold his reward is with him. Look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket compared to God. And then look at verse twenty-six. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created. You know what our greatest problem is? Notice, lift up your eyes and see who. When we're going through dark times and we don't understand, and it's very hard, and it's, it feels long, you know. We are seeing the what. He doesn't say what. He says who. You've got to know who God is in the midst of your circumstances. We usually get consumed with the what. Oh, what is happening? We are consumed with what is happening and why. And God's word tells us you need a bigger who. Notice this chapter doesn't give an explanation as to why they're going to go through this. You get more of God. You, you, it's absolutely essential, my friend, who God is must intersect with what is happening in your life or you will lose heart. We gotta have who, who, who. But our flesh cries out, what, 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 why? What, 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 why? And it's natural. You can read an entire book on this. Job, right? It's like, why, why? He never gets an explanation of why, but same thing. Job in chapters 36 towards 42 just gets a, an amazing who. You've got to know who God is in the midst of what is happening in your life or your nation. Who, who, who. And here's what's interesting. It's the same word that I highlighted last week from Psalm 4610. Remember that? Be still and know that I'm God. And I told you, it's not just cognitive knowledge. It's the Hebrew word that means to know something personally And intimately, in a way that it enables you to trust and rest. It's the same word that was used in Genesis that Adam knew Eve. Sexual intimacy, a closeness, an openness, a vulnerability. Two times he uses the same word in verse 21 and verse 28. Look at it. Have you not say it? And it's not talking about, hey, make sure you got a good systematic theology and you got a chart on the wall of who you think God is, and you check all those boxes. You can have sound theology about what you say you believe God is. And if it's not personal in an intimate way, it will still do you no good. It's like you've got correct written theology, but in the midst of darkness. One of the missionaries said, never doubt in the dark what you know to be true in the light. We tend to think everything's changed when it's dark. Everything's changed when I don't have answers that I want. No, lots has changed. You didn't see it coming and you can't fix it. God has not changed. Bring that theology of who you say he is into this moment. You must, you must, and you must know him, my friend. There's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. Here's some really good news. And sometimes it's these dark times that get you from knowing about God to knowing God. Rarely does someone wake up and say, this year I'm gonna take it from academic to real personal. I wish that was true. It hasn't been true in my life and I haven't seen it to be so much true in others. It's when you are in shattering circumstances where there's no fix, you didn't see it coming, you wouldn't have chosen it, That you're left to grapple with your theology and say, All right, all right, do I believe this or not? Do I believe it now in the dark? And you cry out to God and you go places you've never been before in your relationship with God. And often it's the fruits of something really hard that you would not have chosen. And as your pastor and friend, I wouldn't have wished it upon you, but because of God's word, I hope this doesn't sound bad because of God's word. I don't feel bad for you and wish it hasn't happened because God is sovereign. And it's in some of those things called cancer and divorce and rebellious kids and financial calamities and on and on we could go. It's where people move in the dark from academic to this is my God. He's my God and I'm his child. You gotta. And it's a chapter worth digging into that I hope, this is one of those chapters that you can say, I'm going to read this chapter every day this whole week. I'm not going to read anything else. And you'll see a little more every time. So I don't have time to dig down into what you need to know, but let me just highlight a little bit of what it is I think he wants you to know personally about your God that would make a difference in your circumstances. Here's the first thing. Look at how God's power and authority are never frustrated in any way by earthly powers and decisions they're making huge contrast between the power and authority of God and those of earthly rulers in fact the entire nations nations can make decisions and it doesn't impact God it doesn't hinder God it doesn't impinge on his plans and purposes look at verse 15 behold the nations are a, as a drop in a bucket counted as small dust on the scales Lebanon's not sufficient to burn if you if you're saying what's going on there Lebanon was known for what anybody know the cedars of those huge trees. He's like, like, even though Lebanon's got all that, that's not even sufficient to burn. I am so much bigger and above and more powerful than your most grand things you can see or think of in terms on your own here on earth. And then look at verse 22 through 24. Sits above the circle of the earth. Inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heaven. Well, I love this in verse three, 23. He brings the princes To what? Say it louder. Nothing. Nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. That word nothing is the same word. It gets used in verse 17 and verse 23. And it's the Hebrew word tohu that was used in Genesis 1-2 before God was finished with creation when it said, And the earth was formless and void whatever men and women choose to do and put in place and are driving that looks so big to us, it's null and void the moment God decides, I have another plan. There's something else that I'm doing. Nothing brings the princess to nothing. But now here's something I'm so grateful for. You might be feeling it right now, especially if you're hurting and you are that person I'm talking about. Something has come into your life That's changed everything. There's no fix. You didn't see it coming. As far as you know, it could impact years. All this big God, powerful, we're grasshoppers, the nations are nothing, isles are like dust on the scales. If you're not careful, you could think, okay, he's big, he's powerful, he's almighty, but he's just this cold, stoic, cosmic machine out there. This is not comforting, Brad. This is not encouraging. In fact, it, it leads me down the path I already thought. He's not a loving God. He's not a good God. The book of the chapter, and God knows what he's doing, spends his time helping you realize how big he is. But oh, thank God, and it's intentional for verse 10 and 11. Look at verses 10 and 11. You need to look at God's love for his people and how it's never diminished, even in the worst of circumstances, right here in grim circumstances. Look at the tenderness of God starting in the second half. That second behold in verse 10 behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed. This is the same God that's so big and we're like grasshoppers, same God that brings the nations, princes to. This same God, listen. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom. There's a tenderness and a compassion. If you keep reading Isaiah after chapter 40, you just get more of this. How could a mother forget her children? I cannot forget you. You are precious to me. He sings over them in Isaiah 62. Even though it is this same God who has allowed this burden into their life and for a long period of time, He also is tender and loving and near and personal. The intent is not to destroy you and you are not abandoned. You are not orphaned. You are not alone. Tender, gently, Now, I did learn something. I love it when I actually learn something. Here's a familiar chapter. And, oh, listen to this. In verse 10, I've always thought, behold, his reward is with him. If we persevere and and endure these hard times, he's going to reward us. That's not what it's saying. That's not what it's saying. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. (gasps) He will flee his, he's talking about us. We, he's not talking about bringing you a reward. He's talking about the fact that you are his reward. His people. Because notice, his work is before him. In Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, right after it talks about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, he says, and we are his workmanship. It's the word poema in the Greek. Created in Christ Jesus for we are his work. We are his precious people. We are his reward. That's why Isaiah 62 talks about him singing over us. We're his bride. We're precious. We're his people. We're weak. We're his sheep. And he loves us. See, what's happening here in this chapter, the theologians would use two big words you might not be familiar with, but it's captured in this chapter both. There's the transcendence of God, and that's a big word that just means don't ever pull him down to your level and act like he's just like you. He ought to do exactly what I do. We're buds. High and lifted up. He's not like you, he's other, altogether other. But oh, praise God, here's one of the things that makes Christianity so distinct from other religions. That same God that is high and lifted up, holy, 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 unlike us, perfect in every attribute, is also eminent, near to us, with us. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what Jesus is all about. That's what the Holy Spirit is all about. Transcendent and eminent. Above the circle of the earth and we're like grasshoppers, but those grasshoppers who have put their trust in Jesus, he dearly loves and they're his reward. And he'll carry you in his bosom. And tenderly lead you in the darkness. You're not alone. You're not abandoned. You get this same, you get this same sense right out of the box in chapter 40. Look at the first verse. It, it indicates this right away. Before you even get a bunch of big God stuff. Two pronouns in verse 1 that are so encouraging. Do you see it? My and your comfort. What kind of people? My people. And he's your God. It's personal. It's not, oh, he's a God. He's the God. And he is. But oh, he wants you to know immediately. You're his people. He's your God. It's personal. Personal. So you've got to personally know who God is in the midst of your dark circumstances where you see no fix. Secondly, you'll need to depend on God's word. You will need to depend on God's word and be living for more than this present moment. If this present moment is all you live for, chase after, find satisfaction in, there's not much hope for you to not be discouraged just regularly, undone. You've got to depend on God's word. You've got to have a word from outside of our culture different than what the blogosphere is raging about. And you have to be living for something more than this present moment right here, right now. Notice how he takes it to God's word in verses 6 to 8. Look at how God's word is set in contrast to the frailty of human beings. Human beings can make decisions. Laws come. Laws go. God's word. Remains for everything we do and everything we are, as compared to grass, flowers that can be blown away and wither. And it's the word of the Lord that stands how long? Forever. We're so guilty in dark times when it seems like there's no fix of running to other people. Don't hear me saying he hasn't given us each other as a measure of comfort. But listen to me. When you're in places like what I think was going on when this chapter was written, there are times that you just feel like no matter how well-intentioned someone seems to be, you walk away saying they don't truly get it. You need more than an attaboy. You need more than someone saying, I'm so sorry. You need God's word. And you say, oh, this is so good. The word of the Lord stands for it. You'll have to depend on God's word. You'll have to know God's word. And look how God's word has already been fulfilled in the past in a way that's so very encouraging for our present. Do you see what's happening? He's speaking a word of comfort. What's the best way to comfort people in a place where there's no fix and it's changed our future well, help them think about something bigger than right here, right now. In verses 3 and 4, he is promising and predicting and prophesying about the first arrival of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's what's going on in verse 3 and 4. He's talking about Jesus coming for the first time and John the Baptist preparing the way. That's what all that valleys low and mountains. That's what's going on there. He's coming. Your great hope of a Savior that will solve your biggest problem, which is not Nebuchadnezzar or Babylon or Assyria or anything. He's coming. But then I want you to notice, and so take, take note of this. That was prophesied 700 years before Jesus came the first time. We're living on the other side of the fulfillment of that. That should encourage us even more than it did them. God's word was true. He predicted he would come. He came. And here's where it gets even better. Verse five cannot be talking about Jesus coming the first time. It's not. Look at verse five. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And how much flesh will see it? All Say it. Say it again. All, all flesh will see it together. Oh, the first time Jesus came, all flesh didn't see it. There was a handful of shepherds and some wise men. He, he arrived in a simple, humble manger in a stable in Bethlehem that was nowhere. This next time when our Savior returns, oh my, all The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. Every person will see the power and glory of our God and Savior and will bow the knee in worship. Not just the tribes of Israel. Not just believers. Every person. This is what Jesus was speaking of in Matthew chapter 24 when he said this of himself. He said, then the sign, Matthew 24, 30, then the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. Often the prophets would do this. This is, this is not unusual for scripture. They're trying to speak comfort to an immediate circumstance and they'll often speak to something a little further in the future. And then often there'll be a double, triple, and way on out. That's what's happening in Isaiah 40. Right now, comfort. And oh, don't just live for right now. The Savior's coming. And oh, it's even better than that. There's going to be a day when all flesh will see it together. There's going to be a king. Not King Ahaz, not King Hezekiah. There's going to be a perfect King and justice and power and glory and mercy and grace. But then I want you to think about how knowing God, you got to know who God is. And knowing where we're headed, you got to be living, knowing God's word and living for more than this present moment should change how you persevere. It should impact how you live. God's word was never meant to be an expedition for facts. Let's just learn some stuff. Well, that's fun. Now I'm smarter than everybody else. Oh my goodness. God's word was always intended to be more than information, but transformation. And it changes the way you live. You do have to know it. You can't be ignorant of it. But it was never intended to just be information. So I think it's interesting how this great chapter ends. How it ends in verse 31 with us. The entire chapter is God, God, God. It's one big God thing piled on top of another. And then verse 31 is all about us. Because this great chapter of hope that points you to who God is and where we're headed was intended to make a difference in your life right now in a situation that there's no fix and you can't change and you don't know how long it's going to be. Those, look at it, who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, before we unpack what that word wait means, because there's so much goodness in that and we don't hear it the way we should in English. So I'm gonna go there. But even before I go there, I want you to see something else that fits so well with where we've been this whole new year the series I did from 2 Corinthians 3, 4, and 5. You see it again right here. I told you it's a theme in Scripture. Look at verse 29. What are the qualifications for who gets the power of God? Who does God give power to? Oh, say it louder. Say it like you like it. Say, I'm weak. weak. You better want to be. Because listen to me, He doesn't give it to anybody else. Oh, verse 29. He gives power to the weak. Oh, that's so hard for us to get a hold of because we live in a culture where we're so accustomed to God must want me to be strong. I need to be strong. And and, you know, in our culture, don't dare show a weakness, admit a weakness. It's the opposite of what we're thinking. You know what? God doesn't need you to be strong. He actually needs you to be weak and know it. Because it's then... That he gives power. In that earlier series I told you. God is not looking for people to work for him. He's looking for people. That he can work through. Mightily. With his power. And that almost always. It almost always is a man or woman. Who has hit the wall. You fill in the blank. Whether it was a life changing health situation. Marriage situation. It's someone who's hit the wall. And realized for the first time, so some of you are too young, but just keep living, has hit the wall and realized for the first time just how weak you really are. He gives power. That's when he gives power to the weak, to the weak. That's the, qualifi- that's the one qualification for who gets his power. Got to be weak and got to know it. And then you need to know where to look in your weakness. Not to men and women. To God. It gives power to the weak. And what about this word wait? Oh, I want you to get a hold of this. What is going on? The word wait is not an empty, idle word in the Bible. And you'll find it lost. That would be an interesting study. It would encourage you. If you've got a simple concordance or you can Google the word wait Bible. Look at all the verses that talk about waiting. There's so much goodness shaped around this, if you get a hold of it, those who wait, those who wait, those who wait on the Lord. It's not an empty idle word, but it's pregnant with meaning in the Bible. The Hebrew word that's used there for wait in verse 31 means to be full of hope. And the root word of it means to look with eager expectation and steadfastness so that you can persevere as an expression of your faith, I'm gonna say it again. It means to wait on the Lord means to look with eager expectation and steadfastness so that you can persevere as an expression of faith. So I hope you heard something tagged on the end there that'll make an association for you. Biblical waiting on the Lord eats God's word for breakfast. How are you going to get faith? Faith comes by. You say, Brad, I knew you were going to do this. Yeah, I am. Faith comes by and hearing by the word. You got to be reading God's word and depending on God's word and knowing God's word. That's the only way you can wait on the Lord. If you're not reading God's word, you can't obey verse 31 because it's an expression of faith. You won't have any faith. To look to what? All I'm seeing are my circumstances. When you're seeing who God is from his word, who God is over history, where history is headed, and that every prophecy has been fulfilled and those that remain will be, you're able to look. It's active. It's not a passive word. You're able to look with eager expectation and steadfastness so that you can persevere as an expression of your faith. But now... With the minutes that I have left, I want to point out something that struck me. That's very important. Did it strike you as odd at all in verse 31? The sequence of verse 31. But those who wait on the Lord. All right. What's going to happen to those who live that way? Shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Doesn't it seem like he? See, that's backwards to our way of thinking. Would we not have written it? They will walk and not faint. Do that long enough. They will run and not be weary. And if they read the right books and get the secret formula in the Christian life, they might even soar like eagles. It was not written that way. We want to soar. That's the phrase that grabs us. I want to soar. That doesn't sound as hard as running or walking. And I want to find a way to get to that level and stay there. How do you soar every day in the Christian life? I don't believe it's an accident. It's intentional the way the Holy Spirit worded verse 31 because he knows something about us that we struggle to get a hold of. And it's this. Listen. About the Christian life. About the world we live in now. Steady walking. Even if it's baby steps. Baby steps. Just putting one foot in front of the other is what most of your Christian life will be comprised of. Slow and steady, not flashy. We want flashy. We, you, don't, hear me, don't hear me pulling the rug out from underneath. There'll be seasons of soaring. There might be moments of soaring. You may even experience some seasons of soaring, but listen to me. At the end of the day, when they throw dirt on your coffin, I don't think you'll look back and say, almost every day was a soaring day. You'll see moments because the Christian life, my friend, is comprised of daily by the grace of God and the truth of God and the hope I have, walking. Walking. That just doesn't sell a lot of books, so I won't bother writing that. Just walk it out. Nobody wants that. Talk about soaring, eagles, that kind of stuff. Walking. Walking. William Carey, the father of modern missions, and oh my goodness, these people that in the early days that went out, they suffered in ways that we just cannot hardly appreciate. They they went through numerous wives and sicknesses and horrors. William Carey, the father of modern missions, wrote this I can plod. I can plod. He said, That is my only genius. We keep thinking God needs us to be brilliant. God needs us to be amazingly gifted. No, he needs you to plod to the glory of God, by the grace of God, with the spirit of God, and the word of God. Just plod. That's my only genius, he said. To this I owe everything. The greatest heroes of the faith are not always those who are soaring, but those who are simply taking the next step. William Carey. So let me ask you. Could it be that you're guilty of always trying to figure out how to soar? And until you've got that, you don't even move. I want to know how to soar. Don't buy the books to talk about how to soar. It's a lie. This book says walk. Walk. What's the next step for you today? You may be in a situation where what has happened has changed the trajectory of your life. It's not what you were expecting. It's not what you were hoping for. But you've become paralyzed. What would the next step look like? Not because you understand it all. Lots of times we want the next 15 steps. We want to see light on our path that shows the next. You're not going to get that. With the darkness... But a knowledge of who your God is personally and what his word says, you make that next step. What would that be for you? What is the next step? Oh, God, I I thank you for your word. And thank you that your word is not a book that, oh, it only works in certain seasons. It's only good for certain circumstances. God, thank you that your word stands forever and it is timeless. And yes, the kings and, and, and the way they traveled and got from city to city changes, but the heart of men and women does not change and your rule over history does not change and our hope does not change. Oh God, show us what it looks like to wait to eagerly expect to be steadfast as an expression of our faith because we're knowing you and your word and we're trusting you. Oh God, make us a people in the midst of dark days that are filled with hope looking outside this moment to something bigger But, oh, it it changes how we live this moment, that we're people that are peculiar with hope, people that are peculiar with joy, that is not attached to immediate circumstances. Oh, and may we be people that are first to say, I am absolutely helpless and weak so that you would give us your